This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. Let's take a look at a couple of former governors, George Romney in the 1960s, John Engler in the 1990s. George Romney had a mantra, be bold, quote unquote. That is the advice he gave John Engler in 1991 when John Engler became governor, be bold. And most political observers here in Michigan would agree that Engler and Romney were both bold governors. But now we've got a governor who makes Engler and Romney look like pikers. It's easy to argue that Gretchen Whitmer, or Big Gretch, as she's coming to be called, and she claims to like that name, is bold, perhaps the boldest of all of Michigan's governors dating back nearly 200 years. She's pushed the envelope repeatedly to enhance executive branch power, but now she's getting a lot of blowback all at once. Already there has been a lawsuit filed in the state court of claims by a group of citizens claiming the governor's stay-at-home order has violated their constitutional rights, but a judge last week denied their request for a stay of Gretchen Whitmer's order. But now come three more lawsuits. First, there is U.S. Representative Paul Mitchell, a Republican of the 10th Congressional District, filed suit in a federal court in Grand Rapids, claiming the governor's orders. Justice Center, which has filed suit in federal court again in Grand Rapids, claiming that Whitmer has violated at least six provisions in the U.S. Constitution, This group, by the way, is identified with a number of religious groups and leaders, and it claims that, quote, under the free exercise clause of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, unquote, government must not make law, quote, prohibiting the free exercise of religion, unquote. Finally, perhaps the most significant lawsuit of all came from the Republican-controlled Michigan legislature this week, The Republican majority legislature is challenged in the state court of claims Whitmer's power to continue a state of emergency without approval from the legislature. This one may go eventually all the way to the Supreme Court, but I think that's going to be a long way off. So that is a sum up of the litigation ongoing. But what else happened this week? Well, (laughs) A lot, actually. First, the good news is that the number of cases and deaths from COVID-19 in Michigan were down about half statewide from their peak a month ago in early April. Also, we actually had an election this past Tuesday, May 5th, a regularly scheduled election that a lot of people thought should be canceled but was not. Instead, Voters broke the turnout record for May elections, even though, get this, only one-tenth of one percent actually voted in person. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said the vast majority of people opted to vote by mail 
for Tuesday's election after Benson encouraged people to do so in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, although there were still limited opportunities around the state to vote in person. Turnout registered at around 25%. Now, that breaks the record of 14% ordinarily for local May elections and a lot more than uh, even in 2015. With COVID-19 concerns hanging over the May election, Benson's office mailed more than 740,000 absentee ballots to voters in jurisdictions in 200 municipalities and 33 counties that had an election going on Tuesday. Well, what about the results of those elections? Well, local tax proposals got nearly unanimous approval. All but two of the 46 local tax proposals that made the May ballot on Tuesday passed. Only the voters in Menominee County and the Upper Peninsula rejected two proposals there. That means that some of the biggest bonding proposals for schools passed muster with voters. The biggest was Muskegon Public Schools, $93.1 million. And there were a bunch of others close behind in dollar volume in Kent County, Genesee County, Monroe County. Now, Let's look at the August 4th primary and November 3rd general election. This week, a federal appeals court asked the state of Michigan to accommodate a lot of aggrieved and frustrated candidates trying to get on the ballot. A three-judge panel tossed out a lower court decision to move the state's filing deadline for candidates from what it was in April to May 8th, which is like Friday of this week, and to reduce by 50% the state's signature requirements due to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, in a two-to-one ruling, remember this is a three-judge panel, the U.S. Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals did rule that the state must, and I'm quoting here, reasonably accommodate, unquote, candidates who struggled to gather signatures due to the stay-at-home order. Simply put, federal courts have no authority to dictate to the states precisely how they should conduct their elections, unquote. That's the way the majority opinion read. But they added that District Judge Terrence Berg's requirements could serve as, quote, some guidance. So, In case this is confusing to you listeners, and it's confusing to me, it sounds like, in other words, the three-judge panel seemed to agree with Judge Berg at the district level that all the candidates' rights had been violated, but they said Berg should not be the one to stipulate the remedy. Only the state of Michigan had the power to do that, so the court ruled. And I must say that there was a meeting hastily on Thursday between the Secretary of State and Judge Berg trying to agree 
on a way forward. And at this point, Berg is leaving it up to the Secretary of State to stipulate whether the deadline should be extended. And May 8th has already passed. Uh, maybe it's going to be May 11th. That's Monday. That gives candidates only this weekend to gather any more signatures. But we don't know at this exact moment what the Secretary of State is going to rule. But whatever they rule, supposedly Berg will agree. Now, I got a memo this week from our old friend Mark Grebner, who's been on this program a couple of times. And he says, I think the Sixth Circuit has fully delivered on my promise. This is Mark Grebner's promise of a nomination process train wreck. The only sensible answer was legislative. and There hasn't been one, no statute passed to extend the deadline or cut the signature requirements signed by the governor. And without it, we now have no reasonable way forward. So he thinks, for instance, that a vacant judgeship in Ingham County is only going to be able to be filled by a single candidate who himself got on the ballot because he formed a committee by March 10th. There's much more to follow, but we're going to have to wait to hear exactly what the Secretary of State has ruled and how the candidates take advantage of it if they can. We'll be back in a minute with our first guest. More on ramifications of the COVID-19 epidemic in Michigan and the state's reaction. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and uh, we are very fortunate to have on the other line with us uh, Rob Ritchie, who is CEO of a national organization called Fair Vote. Rob Ritchie, welcome to The Political Insider. Thank you for having me on, Bill. I'd like to ask you uh, what ranked choice voting is, because I think that is your prime mission of fair vote, is to push the implementation of ranked choice voting throughout the United States, maybe end up someday with every single election being decided by ranked choice voting. What is ranked choice voting, Rob Ritchie? Yeah, no, uh, that is is very much our focus, and I think it's becoming more uh, sensible to talk about and administratively feasible, which it wasn't in a lot of places for a lot of the years I've been working on this, and it really is you know, making progress in a whole mix of states and cities. And the principle behind it is really quite simple, which is that when you are considering a field of candidates, if you only have two candidates and you vote for one of them, you really have been fully expressive, right? You voted for one, you didn't vote for the other, you add up all the votes, candidate with more more votes wins, and that's going to be more than half of the vote. When you enter a third choice or a fourth choice, or say in some of these recent presidential primaries in 2016 Republicans and 2020 Democrats, you know, 15 to 20 choices, you know, and you're only voting for one, you're leaving a lot of your views on the table, like you're not able to kind of express them. So the idea of a ranked choice ballot is you get to say who your first choice is, and then if you have one, you say what your second choice is, and your third choice, those additional choices are up to you, how many you use. 
Um, they only come into play if your first choice is a is is a weak candidate, is is in last place when you add up the votes and is eliminated, and then your ballot will go to your backup second choice. And so, you know, just a practical way, you can imagine a race where um, you know, a candidate has forty percent, another candidate has thirty five percent, and then let's say a couple other candidates have fifteen percent. You know, so it's forty thirty five collectively fifteen. Those candidates with fifteen are eliminated because they're way behind, and then they're They've had the option to say who their second choice is, and those are added in. You have what's effectively an instant runoff, like a runoff election is where you have the top two face off, and that's what happens in a ranked choice election. So you get to get a kind of a head-to-head comparison of the two strongest candidates. Yeah, so far in this country, we've had what you might call first-past-the-post elections, meaning whoever has the most votes on this one choice that a voter has um, is automatically the nominee or is elected or whatever, even though that candidate may not have 50% plus one percentage of the vote. Uh, Maybe like you just laid out 40% of the voters. Sometimes you even have elections where 23 or 24% vote for the first place finisher. Yeah. Yeah. Big elections. Yeah. Like it's actually not uncommon. Let's say you have a pretty safe seat for one party for Congress, right? And it's open and everyone knows whoever becomes the nominee of the majority party is very likely to to then, you know, have a long, safe uh, life in Congress, right? Um, You know, it's an attractive thing to run for and you'll have like five, 10 people run and it's not uncommon for someone to win that nominee, 25%. And, um, you know, they might be fine, but they also might not have been really the consensus choice. It becomes a more problematic thing for parties when it's actually more competitive and they can end up with a weak nominee, right? You end up with someone who, you know, was able to get 30% of the primary, but actually has a struggle, would have had a struggle to win a majority of the primary and then becomes a weak candidate in the general election. So it's actually good for parties. We think it's good for voters uh, because it gives them that 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 freedom to kind of vote for who who their who their favorites are without helping to elect their least favorite and you can apply it in a whole different you know a whole whole different set of ways like local elections often take place over two rounds I think that's pretty common in Michigan and you know one of those rounds will have pretty low turnout but you know be important and and um, and and then you have a second election so it can be an instant runoff kind of combining those rounds um, and then when you ever have this conversation about third parties and independent um, candidates splitting the vote like way back in ninety two when Ross Perot first ran for president, you know, he got enough of the vote that only a single state in the presidential race was won with more than half the vote. So Bill Clinton won that year, but um, he only won a single state with more than half the vote. And and, and so you can uh, resolve that question about whether that candidate's winning legitimately or, or just, you know, benefiting from a split vote. Yeah. Um, you put out a press release, Fairvote put out a, re- a lease. Uh, this week, uh, I'm talking to Rob Ritchie, CEO of Fair Vote, and your release said, while our community, states, country, and the world grapple with the fallout of the COVID-19 outbreak, we have anchors that hold us fast to the hope for better elections. Now is the time to build on our progress. Here are four reasons to participate in ranked choice voting, and you list four. Can you tell our listeners what those are? <laughs> Well, I, I, I could. If, uh, maybe I should uh, be a little prompted about the arguments. There are, there are a mix of them. Um, well, the first one but, was third-party yeah. presidential runs yes. of Perot, which right. you've already touched on. Yes, exactly. And that's where, you know, Justin Amash, the 
you know, the Michigan congressman uh, is is running uh, or seeking the Libertarian Party nomination, and there's going to be a lot of conjecture about splitting the vote and so on. And and this would really resolve that whole debate. And it's really tiresome in a certain way, but but impactful that every time a third party candidate runs, there's all this finger pointing, like the third party feels like I should be in the debates. So, Treat me seriously, and the major parties are saying, "Don't run. You're just going to split the vote." And this is a way to just have a win-win solution to that. That the major parties don't have to worry about having your vote split, and the um, the minor party candidate gets gets a fair fair uh, voice. So, in other words, in November, let's say uh, Justin Amash is the Libertarian nominee, Joe Biden's the Democratic nominee, Donald Trump's the Republican nominee. People would actually rank those in their voting, and then the bottom one would drop out, and the election bean counters would uh, take the result from the candidates that are left and decide right. and, and keep going until they get a winner. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, in that kind of simple three-candidate race, you know, probably Justin Amash would finish third unless there was a real earth-shaking, you know, change in, 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 in the polls. And um, but anyone who voted for Justin Amash would have had an opportunity to say who their backup second choice is, and so you get a you know look that people uh, wanted to see for Justin Amash as a first choice, then you would still get to have a decisive head-to-head between uh, Biden and Trump, and you know that would be at least influenced by Amash's voters being able to say who their second choice. Yeah, is. and your second uh, point is that ranked choice in combination with vote by mail made a big difference in four presidential primaries earlier this year. Uh, Wyoming, Alaska, Hawaii, and Kansas uh, apparently took advantage of that, right? Yes, it was really interesting. These are all party-run contests, so they were pretty easy for the party to kind of decide to do it. But they did full-fledged contests. They did vote-by-mail contests with ranked voting for president in four states. One of them is still to happen. That's Hawaii. But three of the state numbers are in. And in each of these races, um, about 10% of the vote went to candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Michael Bloomberg and Pete Buttigieg, who have dropped out. Um, and, um, and of those voters who, who voted for them as a first choice, more than 90 percent ranked uh, Biden or Sanders as a backup choice and had that vote count in the final round, uh, you know, kind of affecting delegates. Um, nationwide, uh, if you look at both parties this year, um, we're approaching three million votes that were cast for candidates who had dropped out um, before their votes were counted. And those would be, you know, really strong case for having a ranked choice ballot. Thirdly, you mentioned Maine, where they put this in place for congressional races. I know in 2018, I think the state legislature now has it in place. What's happened there? Well, in Maine, it first was used in uh, their biggest city. Uh, I think people liked how that has worked. In fact, that city just voted to expand it with 80%. Then they extended it to more offices. It's kind of a push and pull, but uh, the the long and short of it is that they used it in a, a major congressional race in 2018, and it decided the outcome because uh, the candidate who won the uh, uh, led in the first round didn't win because that candidate didn't do well in attracting second and uh, third choice backup support. Yeah, unfortunately, we're out of time. Your fourth point is that state parties in Utah, Iowa, and Minnesota switched to using uh, ranked choice voting for their state conventions. So that's a, still another thing that could be done. Listen. I want to talk more. We'll get you back later. Find out what's happened with ranked choice voting going down the line. But Rob Ritchie, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. Appreciate it, Bill. We'll be back. 
You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the other line Patrick Anderson. He is CEO of Anderson Economic Group, uh, which has produced some very insightful studies over a long period of time on a variety of issues. Welcome to The Political Insider, Patrick Anderson. Uh, Good morning, Bill. Okay, now the Anderson Economic Group, I think, developed in the middle of last month a comprehensive report detailing the best information available on both the course of the COVID-19 epidemic and its effects on the Michigan economy. And your report found that, uh, first, epidemiological models and current data suggest that COVID-19 infections have peaked in Michigan. Now, this was almost a month ago. Secondly, you said Michigan's stay-at-home order, along with decisions made by private citizens and employers, has resulted in a severe contraction in the state's economy. We now have depression-level unemployment in Michigan, with over 16% of our workforce becoming unemployed in just three weeks. This is the middle of last month. You were projecting this and stating it as fact. And thirdly, you said the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's memorandum on essential workers during the COVID-19 pandemic explicitly recognizes many workers who are not recognized in Michigan's executive order. So I just want to ask you, Patrick Anderson, is all this pretty much still true today? Did you basically get it right almost a month ago? And uh, has anything changed? Uh, it's, uh, It's good of you, Bill, to look back and see. There were voices out there early, open, clear, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of them were ignored. In this case, uh, the Anderson Economic Group report, and I think you're talking about an April 13th memo, and you're talking about a, a March 19th, March 19th, so it's, it's, it's well over a month ago, a report about the economy. We said at that time in March, there will be a severe contraction. We could see up to 104 million Americans lose income, many of them lose jobs, and we actually estimated between 800,000 and 1.4 million Michigan people would lose severe amounts of income, which has all come true, unfortunately. And you're seeing now, uh, you know, 20 million jobs lost in April. We are at depression-level unemployment, which is exactly the word that was used a month ago, as, as you pointed out. Also on April 13th, and that actually, that, that memo was hand-delivered to Governor Whitmer's office with a letter from four business CEOs saying, please read this, look at this, evidence about the economy and about the course of the epidemic. We were able to say then that p- cases had peaked in early April. That was, that was as you pointed out, uh, Bill, almost a month ago. And you can go on our website today. Uh, the Anderson Economic Group website, look at the course of the epidemic and see that, indeed, in Michigan, cases peaked in the beginning of April. In Metro Detroit, cases peaked in the beginning of April. In many other areas, cases peaked also around that time. Some, like Grand Rapids, uh, they did not. They were continued to grow. We pointed that out also uh, in, in April, in late April, when it started to happen. But unfortunately, the, the clear evidence at the time was largely ignored. 
uh, in decision-making made at the state government level, and I can't explain why, and the consequence of both the stay-at-home orders and the natural prudence of people in terms of uh, pulling back and social distancing has resulted in such a contraction that it really is an economic depression that we have not seen in our lifetimes. I'm a little puzzled by this uh, essentials workers definition uh, by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, uh, which recognizes many workers who are not recognized in Michigan's executive order. Has the Whitmer made any adjustment on that since you pointed it out a month uh, that, ago? That was in our April 13th memo. Yeah. And you can see a revision of that on our website now. You can you can read it almost word for word for what we had what was uh, provided in the beginning of April. Well, what does that mean? What what we're talking about there is that the stay-at-home orders in Michigan, and this also happened in Illinois, were much more restrictive than what the federal government said was the kind of restrictions that you should put on and workers in order to recognize the essential nature of, of much work. The fact that you can safely, prudently allow a lot of activity to occur. And if you compare side by side, which we did, the Department of Homeland Security memorandum that said, all right, here are essential workers that we need to allow. And in fact, the, the federal government was saying, we need to recognize these people have an obligation to continue to work for their, their, you know, their fellow citizens. We need to recognize that. The Michigan order was almost completely different. It was you know, in tone, you all got to stop only if, uh, you know, only if you're absolutely required, can you go out and work? And this would include people, for example, in certain areas of manufacturing, certain areas involving uh, security and agriculture and food and other things. And, and the consequences of that have been very harsh for Michigan, unfortunately, in that you have a lot of people, I was just reading about the barber in Owasso that got a ticket. Right. Uh, and, you know, these situations where people were, you know, frisked and arrested uh, in different different areas because they were out in parks uh, and the restrictions of, for example, on buying seeds so you can garden at your home or getting in a boat and going out on a lake. Uh, a lot of this stuff was was really uh, much more restricted than was necessary. And it was something that was also pointed out. As you noted, in a, in a memo that was hand-delivered to the governor's office on April the 13th, uh, nearly a month ago. Yeah, I actually know that Owasso barber, Carl Mankey. I know <laughs> I, I, I first met him as a young barber back in the 60s. I mean, literally uh, almost 60 years ago, and he's still cutting hair defiantly saying, I'm cutting it. I don't care. I'll, I'll take a ticket. Well, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, and that's part of... Uh, what we point out, and again, uh, you point out the Anderson Economic Group website. I'm looking at it right now. If you go to AndersonEconomicGroup.com, click on the the news and the, the, the information about the COVID-19 pandemic, we're showing actual charts on different areas of Michigan. For example, we show uh, Northwest Lower, Pen- uh, Lower Peninsula, so Leelanau, Kalkaska, Antrim, Grand Traverse, everywhere from rural scenic to a good-sized city, uh, Traverse City. The cases there have been very low, and wherever they are, they're dropping. In some counties, no cases on many days. It's not real, realistic or reasonable to put the same restrictions on people in Kalkaska that you're putting on Wayne County. It's just not 
there's no basis for it. Uh, and the evidence showed that in April. The evidence showed that later in April. And now in the beginning of May, the evidence is crushingly obvious that uh, the path of the epidemic is downward uh, and that the cost of the restrictions, along with the, the normal social distancing behavior that people want to do voluntarily, has been crushing to people's income and jobs. Yeah, we're running out of time, but I'd like to ask you, uh, Gretchen Whitmer has now said manufacturing can open on Monday, May 11th, uh, but she's extended her, she's calling it now, safer at home order to May 28th. Is this a case of too little, too late? Uh, you know, this is, there's so many different versions of this. And part of it is we've now scared, confused, threatened, and in some cases ticketed people. Uh, and I haven't even read the most recent version now. I mean, I obviously went through page by page, line by line on the earlier ones, but we have told people that it's illegal uh, and that it's it's risky and everything to go out and do normal things even when they're distant. Some In some cases, the restrictions were entirely reasonable in the beginning of uh, April. In some cases, they were reasonable in the beginning of March. But right now, we are we are... We are facing a crushing cost of this uh, in a state where the epidemic actually started going down three or four weeks ago. Well, Patrick Anderson, you make some very good points. And Anderson Economic Group has done a very good job of analyzing this early before a lot of other people and a lot of other institutions. Thank you so much, Patrick Anderson, CEO of Anderson Economic Group. Take care, Bill. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and boy, are we lucky to have somebody with some historical perspective on our situation here in Michigan at this time in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and he is former Speaker of the State House of Representative Bobby Krim. Bobby Krim, thank you for being our guest. My pleasure. Thanks, Bill. Okay, Bobby Krim was Speaker, if I'm remembering correctly, from January of 75 until January of 83, I think. Eight years, is that correct, Mr. Speaker? That's correct. Okay, well, you were elected as a Democrat from the city of Davison, just east of Flint in Genesee County. You served a long time in the legislature. Um, And you were there in 1976 when the Michigan legislature passed an emergency power act, uh, giving the governor some authority in times of emergency Uh, provided that there be some ratification by the legislature to extend orders under that uh, forward in time. And that's at the crux of a lot of debate in Michigan right now, whether the legislature has the ability to not renew gubernatorial executive orders or whether the governor can just unilaterally extend them by herself or himself. And I'm just wondering, do you remember any kind of debate or talk about that? And also, there was another law in effect 
uh, still in effect, called the Riot Act from 1945, which seems to give broader powers to the governor. So what do you think? What do you remember? Well, after our conversation uh, the other day, I uh, did some uh, reviewing and talking with an old staff member who's an attorney, and my memory began to come back about what happened. And uh, and talking with him, I think what started all this was a staff member uh, for Bill Milligan had read something about the uh, uh, pandemic uh, of 1917 and 18, and he wasn't sure that the 1945 law covered it. And so uh, when the staff member came to me and we reviewed it, both of us thought, well, it looks like to me it's good enough. But uh, there was some push uh, for uh, the uh, 1976 Act. So my position was, well, you know, I think it's covered by the 45 Act, but if they insist, I don't see any problem with passing another one. But uh, and I, I really didn't think it was that important because I say I thought it was covered by the 45 Act. Now, because of the 76 Act, uh, uh, many are saying, well, the 76 Act is, uh, you know, only covers uh, local, the, uh, the 45 Act, uh, you know, the state, or the, uh, the 45 was the local, the uh, 76 was state. Uh, I, I don't think it makes any difference. I think um, a lot could have been avoided if the 45 Act was probably used initially. And uh, because uh, I think it was pretty much agreement at that time even that the 45 Act was probably sufficient. But the, I think the staff member didn't see the word pandemic in the, in the uh, 45 Act, so uh, they, they pushed for uh, the 76 Act. Now, that's my recollection now after talking with a fat person. Yeah, well, look, I think you make some really good insights there. I mean, in other words, you think either maybe the 45 Act would have been sufficient or it could have been tweaked a little bit without having to enact a whole new statute in 76. Yeah, I think if you just put the word pandemic in there, that probably would have been sufficient. Yeah. Uh, and. I think even that was mentioned by one of my staff members at one time, but there was a push for a new act, and uh, to you know, uh, because they they just didn't feel it was uh, covered enough, and uh, I didn't feel it was that important. Well, let me uh, let me they, just ask at, at this point: um, do you, do you think that um, because the legislature in 1976 was controlled by Democrats, both chambers, the House and the Senate, and you had a Republican governor, William Milliken, yep. uh, when you did pass the 76 statute, there was language in there calling for the legislature to have the power to determine whether an emergency order by the governor should be extended uh, or yep. not. And, and that wasn't in the 45 Act. So I would... If I were, you know, the Speaker of a House of Representatives like you, I would do exactly what the legislature did, say to the governor, you know, if you really want this so badly, uh, you know, we think maybe the 45 Act is sufficient, but if you really want it, okay, fine. Uh, but we want some skin in the game. <laughs> the legislature is an equal policy-making branch of government. We ought to be able to, you know, ratify this or extend it, Right. Well, I think that was the position of some of the people in my caucus, too. 
And uh, that was the reason uh, that probably was put in as the best I can relate. Uh, uh, that that some people push that well look well, let's you know let's not get but even at that time I I still thought the 45 Act was sufficient and uh, that and and looking back uh, a, a member of my staff said well look what you're doing is giving the government a choice of which one to use if he uses the 45 Act I don't think the 76 Act means anything. <laughs> well, let me let me let me ask you. I mean, uh, you had a governor that you worked pretty well with. I mean, even though you were from different parties, but that isn't going on right now here in Michigan between the Republican-controlled legislature and a Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, isn't that really the crux of the of disagreements and the problems right now in Michigan? The fact that. Probably back in 76, uh, if we'd had anything like we've got right now, you and Governor Milliken probably could have worked things out a lot better than they're doing right now. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, Governor Milliken was a Republican, but he was a good governor. Let there be no doubt about that. I considered him uh, not only a good governor, I considered him my friend. Later on, uh, after we both got out of politics, I used to go up and run every year the half marathon up in Traverse City. We would get together for lunch at the Park Place and, you know, discuss old times and things like that. We discussed running. I even got into running. So uh, it was a situation where we, 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 we wanted to – Governor Milliken wanted to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And, I, and, and you know – I was like Bill Ryan, you know. I, I wanted to be part of the solution, too. So we didn't have any problems of, of setting down and working out our difficulties. Um, I know this is maybe sound political, but the, the political party, the Republican Party of today, I don't recognize in comparison with the political party of 1976. I worked with uh, Bill Milliken. I worked with... Uh, minority leaders, Cawthorn, Bush, and others, and and we had our differences, but unlike uh, today, we could sit down and work out most of the, most of those differences. For instance, during all those years, we had to raise taxes a couple of times. Guess what happened? We sat down and worked out how many votes Republicans would give, how many votes Democratic would, Democrats would give, and Bill Milliken and I were both working to pass the taxes. There, there was nobody, you know, there was not a political party difference. We recognized there was a budget problem. It had to be dealt with, and we dealt with it. I, I don't, that, that's not happening today. And I don't think the Republican Party is the same party as it was. To me, it's now the Trump Party, not the old Republican Party that I worked with in 1976. Do you think there's any hope going forward for the legislature and the governor to uh, break bread and bury the hatchet and work together? Uh, what do you think? Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> I, I'll say this once again. You can take it as a political statement. But I think that Bill Milliken would be doing the same kind of things uh, during this process that, uh, that uh, Gretchen Whitmer is. You know, I think she's doing the logical things, uh, taking good advice 
and uh, and following through on it. And uh, but I, I just don't think the way the parties are structured now, the political parties, especially the change that I view that has occurred in the Republican Party, that there's not much room for solving problems uh, in the legislature today. Well, listen, Bobby Krim, uh, you are such a treasure trove of information and wisdom. I wish we could go on longer, but we're out of time. But I want to thank you so much for your perspective, which I don't think anybody else has uh, taken note of here in the past few days or weeks. And I think maybe you've offered some guidance forward. Thank you, Bobby Krim, speaker. Okay, Bill, thank you. Thank you. Bill? Yep. I'm here and we'll be back next we'll be back next week. We'll be back next week.